Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. I want you to imagine uh, being a Christian in a situation where those who are in authority over you require you to do something that would violate your convictions. And you might be thinking, well, that's not too hard to imagine. I'm in that situation right now. I'm thinking, for instance, of a man I know who was a salesman. And in his capacity as a salesman, he had a supervisor who expected him to obtain uh, prostitutes for clients as a way of helping to close the sale. Something, of course, as a Christian, he couldn't do. Or I think of a... Uh, junior high teacher I know, who was instructed by her principal to change what she called a student, whether Alex or Alexa, depending on whether the student identified on any given day as a boy or a girl. It could change from day to day. Or like so many during the pandemic who had conscientious objections to get the COVID vaccine, but were told by their employers to either get vaccinated or lose their jobs. Or like a nurse who's told that if she's going to continue to work in the operating room, that she's going to have to assist with abortions as she would with any other procedure. It's not hard to imagine these days, is it? As society increasingly rejects the moral stand that we take as Christians and, and regards our convictions as archaic or even bigoted, we will more and more find that those in authority over us will expect us to violate our convictions. Most often these days it will be your job that is threatened or promotion that is denied. Is it possible that in the future lives could be at stake as they are in so many places around the world? How can we as Christians remain unshaken in our faith in the face of such threats? That's the question addressed by our passage for today. We're in Daniel chapter 3. Uh, so far in our study of Daniel, we've seen how four young Hebrew captives have found a way respectfully to serve King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon without violating their dietary laws as Jews. We've seen how Daniel and his three friends distinguished themselves in their training and advanced in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen how Daniel saved all the wise men of Babylon from execution when God gave him the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, plus the interpretation of that dream. And though they were terribly out of place in Babylon, these Hebrews who serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have advanced in the court. And Daniel in particular has been made the ruler of the whole province of Babylon. Uh, and at his request, at Daniel's request, his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
also known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three friends are promoted to uh, places within Daniel's administration overseeing the province of Babylon. While Daniel, it says at the end of chapter 2, remained at the king's court. But it's their high-profile positions in the government that now put Daniel's friends in a difficult position where they must either violate their convictions as God's people or be put to death. And the experiences of Daniel's friends here in Daniel 3 pose three important questions for us to think about in a culture that is increasingly opposed to our faith. And those three questions are basically these. What do you do when those who rule demand that you sin? What do you do when those who oppose you turn you in? And what do you do when those who condemn you think they'll win? So we're going to look at those three questions through the experience of of, uh, Daniel's friends. Their story is very instructive for us, and it begins this way in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 where it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So about nine miles south of the city of Babylon on this plain called Dura, Nebuchadnezzar erects this image, 90 cubits, or 60 cubits high, which is 90 feet tall, and six cubits wide at its base, which means it was about nine feet across, a tall, skinny image, all plated in gold. So it must have been pretty magnificent. Now, nobody knows exactly what this image was. Was it an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself? Maybe he's feeling a little full of himself because after all, in Daniel chapter two, Daniel uh, interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar in which Nebuchadnezzar was the head of a great statue. He was the head of gold of the statue. And so maybe Nebuchadnezzar thinking, well, if I'm a head of gold, then we might as well uh, you know, make an image of that so people can be impressed with me. It could be an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It could be a representation of the gods of Babylon. Whatever it was, it was intended to draw attention to the glory of Nebuchadnezzar and, and the gods of Babylon and, and Nebuchadnezzar's power. And people were expected to bow down to it. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar assembles uh, all the great officials from all of Babylon are supposed to come for the dedication service of this magnificent image that Nebuchadnezzar is erecting in celebration of himself and his gods. And they all come to that place and a, a herald announces, all right, pretty soon some music is going to play. Uh, instruments of all different descriptions. They're all going to play at once. And when the, when the music starts, we all bow down and worship to the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up here on the plain of Dura. And so the, the music starts. And uh, the noise is, is, is great. And as the music starts, all the people bow down in worship to this image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up, all except for the three Hebrews. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, they would not bow down. By the way, some people ask, well, what about Daniel? Well, it appears that Daniel wasn't present on this occasion, or most certainly Daniel would have been with them in this protest. 
Uh, Daniel is, is probably back in Babylon uh, taking care of things back at the palace while everybody else is, is here at this dedication service. But Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, they can't bow down to this image because it would be a, a violation of their convictions before the Lord. They can't bow down for the simple reason that their God has told them never to do such a thing. You ever heard of something called the Ten Commandments? Yeah. <laughs> well, the first two of the Ten Commandments are all about this, right? Commandment number one says, you shall have no other gods before me. And commandment number two says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So don't have any other gods and don't bow down to any images of other gods. For these three Hebrews to do what Nebuchadnezzar commands here would have been to violate their conscience. It would have been an outright sin against the Lord, a violation of not one but two of the Ten Commandments. What do you do when those who rule demand that you sin? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by their, answer, by their example, give us the answer to that. When those who rule demand that you sin, don't give in. Don't do what they're asking you to do. And so the three Hebrews offer what's sometimes referred to as passive resistance. It's nonviolent opposition to authority. A refusal to cooperate with legal requirements, especially when those requirements are regarded as unjust. I want you to see, they don't make a big stink about it. You know, they don't stand and shout and shake their fists. They don't send out angry tweets or or get on social media and complain about how, how they're being done dirty or something. They, they just don't comply. They just don't do what Nebuchadnezzar commands because they answer to a higher authority. The point is, when those who are over you Amen. demand that you do something that violates your conscience, they can demand all they want, but you don't have to do it. Now, this isn't the first time in Scripture that, and it won't be the last time in Scripture, that God's people are being required by authorities to do something that, before God, they shouldn't be doing. And every time you see that happening in the Scriptures, God's people will choose to obey God rather than men. And so, for instance, back in Exodus chapter 1, you have the example of the, the Hebrew midwives who are being told by Pharaoh that uh, because the Hebrews are becoming so numerous in Egypt that, that the next time uh, you're attending a, a Hebrew woman and she's giving birth to a male child, you're to kill that child. Make sure the child doesn't live. But what does it say in Exodus 1.17? But that the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. We'll see in Daniel chapter 6, just three chapters from the chapter we're looking at today, that an edict is passed that, that no one should pray to any other god except Darius, the king, for 30 days. But what does Daniel do? In Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10, when he knows full well that this law has been passed and has been signed, sealed, and delivered, and he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his god as he had previously done. He just does what he always did. He doesn't comply with the edicts to pray only to Darius. In the days of the early church, when Peter and John are told 
by the high priests that they should never preach again in the name of Jesus in Jerusalem. What do the, the apostles say? We must obey God rather than men. When those who rule demand that you sin, don't give in. My first experience saying no to somebody in authority like this, believe it or not, happened when I was in the first grade. Yeah, the same year I threw the apple behind the freezer. Some of you remember that. It was at Christmas time, and our music teacher, Mr. Stefanik, was getting us ready for our participation in the Christmas program, and the first graders were going to sing a few cute little Christmas songs, and then uh, they were going to uh, have nine of us stand up with letters spelling out Christmas. You know, we'd raise them one at a time, C-H-R-I-S-T-M-A-S, and, and then we would say something related to Christmas as we raised our letter. Well, I was given the letter M, and my script was simply to say, M is for Mary, the mother of God. Now, those of you who are Catholic will think, okay, great, Mary, the mother of God. But the uh, truth of the matter is, in a Protestant home, that's not kosher, right? Uh, to call Mary the mother of God is blasphemous because, well, my mom knew her Bible and she knew that, that Mary should not be attributed with being the originator of the Godhead. That was blasphemous. Mary was certainly the mother of Jesus, the son of God who became a man. She was the human mother of Jesus and, and she should be honored for that. And so my mom wrote a note back to Mr. Stefanik that said, uh, you know, we're Protestant. We can't say this. We don't believe this. And so how about if Dave says instead, uh, M is for Mary, the mother of Jesus. But Mr. Stefanik, um, being the strong Catholic that he was, was having none of it, and he wrote back a very stern note that said, if he can't say it the way I scripted it, then we'll find somebody else to be letter M. So I was out. I was no longer letter M. I was, I was just a member of the chorus. But you see, it, it may seemed like my mom was making a big deal over nothing, but she was teaching me something very important. She was teaching me we don't violate our convictions just because someone in authority says we should do so. When those who rule demand that you sin, don't give in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow when the music plays. They will not bow in worship before the image Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And their enemies are all too happy to bring this to the attention of King Nebuchadnezzar. These are enemies who perhaps resent the rapid rise of these Hebrews to power, positions of power. Uh, thinking that uh, these foreigners shouldn't have gotten those positions, some of us should have gotten those positions instead. There's almost certainly some racial bigotry going on here as well. Uh, because uh, much is made of the fact that they are Jews. And the accusation is brought by these uh, Chaldeans, natives of Babylon, who apparently don't like the growing influence of these foreigners. And so in verse 8 it says, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And they say to the king, Hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, didn't you say that when the music plays we should all bow down to this this magnificent image that you have made, and a very fine image it is, O king. And, and, and when the music plays, we all bow down, and if anyone didn't bow down to the image, he would be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And the king affirms, yeah, that's, that's what I said. Well, verse 12 says, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs 
of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That might have been a mistake, O king, because these men pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So the meat of the accusation here is that these Hebrews are not loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. They don't uh, listen to him. They don't serve his gods. And everyone else bowed down to the golden image, that magnificent golden image you set up, O king, but they did not bow down in worship. And Nebuchadnezzar, being the proud despot that he is, takes this very personally. It says in verse 13, that Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Men whom Nebuchadnezzar himself had given prominent positions in the province of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar interrogates them as if to say, um, look, I know you're Hebrew and maybe you're still learning Chaldean, so maybe you didn't understand what, what was supposed to go on here today. Uh, you know, what was supposed to go on here today was that uh, when the music plays, everyone bows down to the golden image in worship. And so, look, we're, we're going to give you a do-over, a second chance. I'm going to strike up the orchestra over here, and when the music starts playing, you're all going to bow down, and we're going to forget about this all ever happened, right? Nebuchadnezzar is well aware that these Hebrews serve another God. He says at the end of verse 15, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Well, he knows the God they serve, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God whom, whom Nebuchadnezzar himself has acknowledged in the previous chapter as the God who is superior to all other gods at revealing mysteries. He was the one who gave Daniel the interpretation of the dream. But that didn't make him mightier than the gods of Babylon. He might be a, a great revealer of dreams, but how mighty can he be? After all, we, Babylon, conquered Jerusalem, and we tore down the city walls, and we wiped out that temple to that God of theirs. How, how strong can he be if he let all that happen? Their God might be smart, but, his, but our gods are mighty, and nothing will save them if they don't bow down. What do you do when those who oppose you turn you in? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about, again, to show us the answer by their example. When those who oppose you turn you in, say what's true. Just say what's true. Verse 16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer in this matter. You don't need to strike up the orchestra again. Uh, we're not going to bow down. Uh, they don't protest their innocence. They don't try to give excuses. They basically plead no contest. Uh, they're willing to accept the consequences. And then they simply say what they know to be true about their God. Nebuchadnezzar has said, hey, what God can deliver you from my hands? And, and what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do here reminds me very much of what Jesus taught his disciples to do in similar circumstances. In Matthew 10, 19, Jesus said, but when they arrest you, 
Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. And what the three Hebrews say on this occasion is brilliant, bold, and true. Verse 17, if this be so, if it's really the case that you feel you have to throw us in the fiery furnace because we won't bow down to that image, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The basic truth spoken here is that of the superiority of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar, you can ask what you have asked what God can deliver us from your hand? Well, our God can. He's not only the revealer of mysteries, but he is also a strong deliverer. The might of Nebuchadnezzar and his burning fiery furnace are no problem for our God. And they prophetically express confidence that he will deliver them. But even if he chooses not to save them from the fire, they will still worship the Lord alone and not bow down. When those who oppose you turn you in, just say what's true about your God. Kim Duk-soo is a Korean man who will never forget the events of November 20th, 1950. That was the day communist troops found him and his father hiding in a root cellar. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of Christians were trying to escape the North in those days, trying to escape North Korea as the communists took over, fleeing to the free South. And Kim Duk-soo says, when we heard the soldiers coming, I was sure we would be killed. His eyes filled with tears as he said, my daddy told me that we could not tell a lie, even to save ourselves. Kim's father had been a pastor of a church for 42 years. And when they heard that the communists were coming, uh, the pastor and his wife had hidden their children by covering them with bags of rice and and dirt. But after two days of hiding, uh, Kim could hardly stand it anymore, and he uncovered himself just as communist troops approached the house. So Kim and his father ran to the backyard and hid in the root cellar. I told God I would serve him all my life if I got out of the root cellar alive, he says. Well, the soldiers found Kim and his father and took them off to a makeshift prison and were told that the next day they would be executed. That evening, a captain approached Kim and he said, are you a Christian? For a fleeting moment, Kim thought he could save his life by telling a lie. It seemed the only logical thing to do. But then he remembered his father's instruction. We will not lie even to save our lives. And so Kim said, I am a Christian. The captain drew closer and whispered, I'm a Christian too. He said, I used to be a Sunday school teacher before the war. You must escape tonight and I will help you. Kim fled that night for the South having to leave his father behind under heavy guard and his eventual death. But it was simply saying what was true that saved his life that night. When those who rule demand that you sin, don't give in. When those who oppose you turn you in, say what's true. 
And then thirdly, the third lesson we learned from the Hebrews example here is, when those who condemn you think they'll win, have no fear. When those who condemn you think you'll win, they'll win, have no fear. Nebuchadnezzar has claimed that no one can deliver them from his hand and the burning fiery furnace. The Hebrews have responded with their confidence that the Lord can. But even if he doesn't, they say, we won't bow down. And that makes Nebuchadnezzar all the more determined to prove them wrong. No one can defy the gods of Babylon and live to tell about it. So it says in verse 19 that Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You get the idea that he was trying to find a way to save them. He kind of liked these guys, but now he's just raging mad at them. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. So they heated it just as hot as they could possibly get it. The three men are tied in their clothing, in their turbans, in their clothing, their cloaks, everything. They're, they're like totally flammable, like, like human torches just waiting to be lit. And they're tied so that they can't get loose. And, and strong men are appointed to throw them into the burning fiery furnace. And they, they do so, but the furnace is so hot that it kills the men who throw the three Hebrews in. And it says in verse 23 that these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes to the door of the furnace and he calls out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out of there. And they come out and hear all these officials, the satraps and the and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors, they're all gathered together and they look at these guys and they see that the fire had not had any power over their bodies, the bodies of these men. They were still perfectly fine. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And I love this part. And no smell of fire had come. They didn't even smell like a campfire. They didn't even smell like the smoke of the fire. Nebuchadnezzar uh, answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue this way. When those who condemn you think they'll win, have no fear. But be careful not to draw the conclusion from this that when your faith comes under fire, God will always rescue you. That's not what this is saying. That's what happened in this particular case. The, the three Hebrews got rescued, but that's not what always happens. Many of God's people will die a martyr's death at the hands of those who oppose them. You know, next week is the day of prayer for the persecuted church, and we'll see a, vis a video from Voice of the Martyrs 
that uh, is the story of one such person who gave his life for his faith. So there are those who will die a martyr's death and not be saved, but that doesn't disprove their faith. It doesn't say that their faith was misplaced because our faith is not in God's rescue, but in a God who loves us and and whose, whose care we can be counted on no matter the outcome. Biblical faith is not confidence in particular outcomes. It is confidence in a sovereign God. It's confidence in a God who loved us so much that he let his son pay the ultimate price of dying a a martyr's death on a cross, a death he didn't deserve, taking our sin upon himself and paying the penalty that we should have paid. It was that kind of loving God who not only let his son die, but then raised him from the dead, victor over sin and death, so that by faith in him, we can have forgiveness of sin, a new life with God, and the confidence of heaven one day. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego committed themselves to uncompromising obedience no matter the outcome because they trusted in the goodness of their God. They simply obeyed God and trusted him to take care of the situation. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king, they said. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, but only the God of Israel. In the spring of 1940, the German army was plowing through France, invading that nation, attempting to conquer it. In spite of the presence of 300,000 or more British soldiers who had come to help defend France from the German advance, Uh, The the whole Allied army had been pushed back to a little town in the north of France called Dunkirk. And many of you know the story of Dunkirk. How a nearly miraculous outpouring of courage caused the British people to send boats of every description, fishing boats, pleasure crafts, sailing vessels, uh, commercial vessels, uh, all kinds of boats went and rescued nearly all the soldiers from the beaches of Dunkirk and brought them to safety in England. But in the moments before that rescue came, when annihilation or surrender seemed certain, when everything looked hopeless, it said that there was a British officer who sent a simple message back to England, a message condensed into three powerful words taken right out of this passage. The words were, But if not, but if not, not. as if to say, things look really grim. We might just pay the ultimate price here. We're hoping for deliverance, but if not, we're going to stand strong until the end. But if not, the three friends declared in verse 17, if this be so, If it be so that we must be submitted to the fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's greatest demonstration of faith was not in their declaration that God would deliver them from the fiery furnace. Their greatest demonstration of faith was in those three words, but if not. 
Those words express confidence not in their preferred outcome, but in the goodness of their sovereign God who would be with them no matter the outcome. But if not, those are words to live by. And for some, they're words to die by. See, what this passage teaches us is not that when people oppose you because of your faith, that God will always save you from the fire. That's not what it's saying. Daniel's friends knew there was a distinct possibility the fire would consume them. But they were determined to honor the Lord and to trust in him and trust in his goodness, even if the fire did consume them. The bottom line of this whole story is really this. When your faith comes under fire, you won't be alone. When your faith comes under fire, no matter the outcome, you can trust that you won't be alone. Nebuchadnezzar said, we threw three into the furnace, but there's another in the fire. And his appearance is like a son of God. When your faith comes under fire, you won't be alone. We know that's true, not only because it's illustrated for us in in this story of Daniel's friends, but because the New Testament explicitly teaches that God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When those who rule demand that you sin, don't give in. When those who oppose you turn you in, say what's true. And when those who condemn think they'll win, have no fear. Don't be afraid. There will be another in the fire with you. When your faith comes under fire, you won't be alone. Thank you, Jesus, indeed. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the powerful truth of this passage. We're grateful for the clear teaching of your word that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Lord, it may be that there's someone here today who's in this very predicament where there is someone in authority over them who is expecting them to do something that would violate their convictions as, as a believer in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would take your word and, and use this to not only encourage them, but to embolden them to stand strong in the face of that circumstance for you. Help them to know, Lord, that they're not alone in what they face. Some have already been through this, uh, even in recent months, have lost jobs because they refused to go along with things that they were being required to do by their employers. Uh, some are, are going to face it in, in months to come. Teachers who may, be, who may be expected to teach things that they, in good conscience, can't teach. Lord, whatever the situation in which we find ourselves, whether it's current or whether it's still ahead of us, I pray that you would inspire us by the example of these three brave young men and that you would help us to remember Jesus who gave his all for us. May we always stand strong in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.